All right, if I could get your attention, we could, uh, we could get started. We, this is our second lesson in a 10-week series on the book of Exodus. And this is one of the classic stories. We've all heard it, the burning bush. And of course, in the end of last week's lesson, we saw that the people of Israel were in slavery and they were crying out to God for help. What they needed was a hero, just like this hero, which is Kramer in today's movie clip. <laughs> All right. At the end of last week, we saw that Moses was a 40-year man. He had three periods of 40 years. The first 40, he was in Egypt as the prince of Egypt. And he was educated by the Egyptians, and he was kind of a hero there, we're told. Uh, the, the historian Josephus says he was a really well-known guy and uh, a, a, a hero in Egypt. And, but he knows that he's a Hebrew, so he takes it on himself to go to see his brethren out there, you know, building the pyramids or whatever they were building. And one of his brothers, one of the Hebrews, was being beaten. And so he took the Egyptian aside and, and hit him, and it, and it killed him, and he buried him. And then he assumed that his fellow Hebrews would accept him as their leader and deliverer, and they did not. Instead, they ratted him out. So his first 40 years was as this uh, rich, well-to-do Egyptian. His second 40 years was as a fugitive in the wilderness. So he spent 40 years in the wilderness with the sheep and goats. So, I mean, it's the exact opposite life. And so he is completely humbled and brought down to earth during that 40 years and then as he's herding his sheep and goats near Mount Sinai, he gets the call. He sees a burning bush that doesn't extinguish. And of course, we know that what it is is the glory of God in the bush. And as I said last week, people always want to know, uh, what kind of bush was it? And where was that bush? You know, because I guess they want to go out and worship it or pray to it or some crazy thing. And the idea in the story is that it doesn't matter what kind of bush it is because any bush that God's in will work. You know, that's the key. And where it is, wherever God chooses to call you, that's a good place. That's a holy place. And so what kind of bush and where it is doesn't matter. Moses gets the call. And, you know, this concept of the call, people talk about that all the time, I, especially people in the ministry. They say, I got the call. Have you had the call? I've got the call. And I always thought that was very subjective. And I wonder, what are they talking about? <laughs> what is the call? You know, and I, I was able to read this book by Oz Guinness that kind of like laid it out for me. And I was going to share just a little bit with you. He wrote this book called, believe it or not, The Call. And in The Call, he says, 
that there's a great need in all of us to have a sense of purpose, meaning, and to have just feel like we're called to do something and to be something special, something to shoot for. We really need a calling. And he says, uh, this is a quest that all human beings share. Research that he did uh, showed that there is a deep human desire to find that idea that we all want to live for, so an important idea to live for, a calling. And people also have an expectation that they'll find it. You know, if you just look hard and make yourself available, you'll find it. And then thirdly, here's the problem, that expectation is usually frustrated, confused, distorted. Why? Because people are rich in ways to find their call or to find the purpose in their life, but they're very poor in the truth. They're very poor in what it is their calling is. And so that's a problem. A truth uh, tends to be very elusive to the human race. You may have noticed that. And it seems to people nowadays that truth is relative. Any truth will do. What do you think? Well, I think something different. But that's your truth, and this is my truth. The Bible doesn't read like that. In the Bible, it's, I think it's clear that there is absolute truth given by God. Truth is not relative. It's, it's absolute. If this is God's word, then what God said is absolute. And so the problem with the human race when it comes to this calling is that this truth is elusive. You know, they look for it in all the wrong places because they look to self-help movements, to philosophies and religions that men invented, and, of course, the ultimate self-indulgence. You know, how can I get fulfilled? How can I live that life that I've always looked for? Self-indulgence. Whatever feels good, do it. And, of course, none of that works. It just ultimately ends in frustration. So the result is that people have a quest for a purpose, but there's no end in sight. They, don't have the, they want to have faith, but the object of their faith is all wrong. So the principle that we, we need to follow and that Moses finds out about in the story is that the strongest sense of purpose that we can have is a call from our Creator. And in the Bible, there's three kinds of calls. And of course, that first one, which is all important, which is your initial salvation. The gospel is out there for everyone to hear and to receive, to be called by and to respond to. The second one, all believers are called to serve. Everybody that believes in Christ, that calls himself a Christian that's in a church, is called to serve. And God has given us spiritual gifts to use in that service. And we're called to do it. And then there's something theologians call the special call, that third kind, the special call, which is the burning bush thing. And very few people, I don't know what percentage, less than 1% have a burning, a real burning bush experience. You may use that phrase, but the idea that God audibly speaks to you is a very special, unique, rare calling. But that's what Moses is going to have. Of course, he's going to have all three of those in today's lesson. You know, God's going to reveal himself to him. He's going to be saved. And then he's going to be 
literally, God is not only calling him to serve, God is going to insist on it. <laughs> you know, you will go to Pharaoh. I can't do it. So he's going to have all these excuses, but God is not going to take no for an answer. And I think, I believe that the scriptures are saying that's the expectation for all of us, that God's not going to take no for an answer. He saved you by the blood of Christ. He now he expects you to respond to it and serve him, right? So uh, uh, in the Bible, there's two great, two great examples of being called as well. And one we're going to see in a couple of weeks at Mount Sinai. That first one is the call of Israel to have a special relationship with God, to be a nation set apart. And God's going to give him his holy righteous standard, which is the Ten Commandments. And the idea is, I'm going, you're going to be a nation of priests in the sense that I'm going to reveal myself to the world, reach out to the world through Israel, and you will keep this law. And as you keep it, you will be, you'll prove to be my representative. Of course, in the history, you know what happened. They, they did not keep it. Uh, then the second one, the second great calling in the Bible is the beginning of Christianity. When Christ came into the world, the incarnation, he called people to do what? That the, the, Very simple. But every time he would present himself to someone or an audience, he would say, very simple, two words, follow me. <laughs> follow me. So he's the, our great example, and he has the information straight from God that we all need. Revelation. I mean, the New Testament is that revelation from Jesus Christ. The apostles who wrote it got all the info from Jesus. And so those are the two great calls in the, in the Bible. And Jesus has issued that second call to follow me to that, the broad scope of the human race. And he sent his people out to make disciples of all nations and to uh, preach the gospel, right? So everyone's called in, in that sense. And I see five applications of this idea that we're all called to be saved and we're all called to serve. Number one, what Os Guinness called everyone, everywhere, in everything. What he meant by that is that salvation is available to everyone and each of us is to answer wherever we are and according to who we are, right? So he's saying... Uh, wherever you are and whatever gifts and talents you have, you're to answer the call and to believe in and serve him. Secondly, it's by him, to him, and for him. So the call comes from him or by him, and the call is to come to him. And then why would you do it? For his glory. The whole human race is out there doing everything they can do for their own glory. We want to enrich ourselves. We want our name, you know, in lights. We want to, you know, the world to revolve around us. But God is calling us to glorify himself. Uh, thirdly, be yourself and do what you do, but not for yourself. I think this is great. Be yourself. So people tend to think, okay, God's called me. I've got to be a different person. I've got to go somewhere else. 
No, God is saying, be yourself. You're an, a unique individual. So whoever you are, be that person. Wherever you are, serve me there. And again, not for yourself, but for God. You live for God and you serve him. So the calling is ours, the gifts are ours, but they're supposed to be used for others in the service of the Lord. Fourthly, uh, you have an audience of one. And of course, he means God. And what does he mean by that? Well, typically, we do most of the stuff we do to please other people. We want people to like us. We want to be popular. We want acclamation from other people. But in this calling, the idea, the concept is it's an audience of one. We live our life knowing that God is watching and that God cares what we do and who we are. Of course, you know, the problem is people are just so dependent on the opinions of others and the approvals of others. So they kind of have to get over themselves and realize they're living for the Lord. And then fifthly, he says, the buck stops here. In other words, God actually holds us responsible and accountable. We have the freedom to do whatever we do, how and when and how much, the whole deal. We have the freedom, but still God holds us responsible and accountable. So again, the three kinds of calls uh, are in today's story. And this theophany, the theophany means, theos means Greek word for God, means God showing himself, revealing himself. And of course, in this case, it's in the burning bush, and he actually audibly speaks with Moses. And this is the good news, not only to Moses, but to us, as God calls him to do what seems to be impossible. It'd be like, you know, God calling you to go to some remote place and evangelize the whole country. You'd go, I could never do that. How could little old me, how could I make, you know, we would normal, we would all say that, right? Well, the good news is God reveals here that when he calls us, when he called Moses, he gave great assurance. How so? He says, I am with you. That's pretty good news. Because when it comes to doing some kind of great thing, I know, I'll speak for myself, I'm inadequate. Paul says it real well in 2 Corinthians 3. He says, we are not adequate in and of ourselves. Our adequacy comes from God. And that's the message to Moses. You, you don't think they'll listen to you? You don't think they'll follow you? And of course, naturally, Moses said, no, they won't follow me. I just, when I was the prince of Egypt, had everything going. They wouldn't follow me. They ratted me out. So why would they follow me now? And so God says, because this time will be different because I will be with you. It's not about you anymore. It's about who's with you. And the same thing goes for us. Our deficiencies will not determine God's action. He's going to do what he's going to do. The question is, will we be used to do it? Will we get that blessing of being used to do it? Uh, and then the problem is, uh, is illustrated by this uh, joke. Uh, this minister was preaching this sermon and he was really emotional and he was the urgency of answering the call and serving the Lord, serving the church. You know, 
You've got to do it. You know, he's working so hard in his sermon to move his congregation, to motivate his congregation like most ministers do. And he ended it with, you've got to act now because you could walk out of here today and get hit by a truck. Then where would you go, heaven or hell? So the church's response, they voted to put a stoplight in a crosswalk <laughs> on the street. And that's kind of what we do. We look for, you know, material, physical things instead of the leading of God. And so if you'll open your uh, books now to Exodus, your Bible to Exodus chapter 3, if you have them there. Uh, the, the bush calls out to God. And can you imagine uh, Moses' reluctance? He was very much a reluctant, what I would call a reluctant prophet. Because, I mean, think about it. Uh, in, in today's lesson, he's going to ask God, you know, why would they listen to me? And what's your name? And, you know, when you take that out of context, you might say, well, that's a crazy thing to ask God. You know, who is he? And why would they call, answer him? And and what's his name? But just think about it for a minute. What is Moses supposed to do? Go back to Israel who's already rejected him and say, well, I was talking to a bush and it told me to tell you. I mean, <laughs> that sounds ridiculous and Moses knew that. So he's, so he's got all these questions and, and he's got these concerns and, he, and really uh, he begins asking questions that actually turn into objections, right? So we're going to look at that in just a minute. Uh, in verse 1 through 9, what you do have here is what, the, the question, what do you do after four, 400 years of slavery? And it looks like there's no end to it. What do you do? Well, you, you pray. That's the only thing you can do. It's like all of our problems, when we can't figure out any other way or any other answer on our own, we end up on our knees praying. And so that's obviously one of the reasons God allows the problems that come into your life so that you'll turn to him in dependence. So God heard their prayers uh, at the uh, end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. God hears the prayers and answers in his own timing. And then he identifies himself in verse 6, which is very important. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I think not only was he identifying himself, but he was also saying that these ancestors of yours are still alive. Because he referred to them in the present tense. These guys are still alive in heaven. It's almost like they're, they're uh, with God watching what's going on. And God is going to fulfill all the promises that he made to them. So the reason I think that is... Uh, is certainly fulfilled because in Matthew, Matthew uh, 22, when the Sadducees asked Jesus about the resurrection and they kind of give him a trick question, remember what Jesus said? He said, in the, the book of Moses, talking about this passage, did not Moses refer to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present tense because he's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. So Jesus was affirming that not only is God the, their God, but they're alive in heaven at the time and still are during Jesus' time. So eternal life, uh, and he's saying 
that I am fulfilling the promises that I made them. I've chosen this time to do it, Moses, and, and here I am. So you, go, you are going to represent me. And, of course, that's Moses' burning bush experience to hear this voice and tell him to answer the call, to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And then in verse 10 through 15 in Exodus 3, uh, you get this surprise. God's calling this inept Moses who admits that he can't speak well, he's inadequate, there's no way anybody's going to listen to him. God is going to accomplish this through a guy like that. And so the, the biblical paradox, and by the way, Numbers 12, 3 says that Moses was the most humble man ever. Think about that. After the second 40 years, when he's 80 years old, he's the most humble man ever. But back there when he was 40, he was pretty cocky and arrogant and just thought that Israel would follow him and that he could get away with killing the Egyptian and he would be the head guy and main guy. God didn't use him then. He uses him now that he is, as the, uh, Numbers 12.3 says, the most humble man ever. So here's the paradox. The all-powerful God uses weak human beings. The all-powerful God uses, has chosen to use weak human beings, even sinful human beings, to carry out his great plan. And so now after 40 years of humility, and he's become this humble man, uh, God chooses Moses. So God's divine sovereignty involves human activity. What God's going to do is going to involve human activity. So that's, that's why the call. That's why we need to answer. That's why God expects us to answer, because that's his plan. God accomplishes his will through the willing obedience of his faithful servants. And so now that he's calling Moses, we're going to see Moses say, who am I? And then when God answers, you know, that doesn't matter because I'll be with you. So it's all about God and not you anyway. Naturally, what's Moses going to say then? The second question, who are you? <laughs> and why would he say something like that? That's actually a good question because when he asks that, who are you, he's, he's basically saying, you know, back then you weren't there for me, but now you say you will be there for me, and you're the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which makes you the God of slaves. The gods of Egypt seem to have all the power. They're the ones that are on top. Egypt's the most powerful nation. We're people, of, we're slaves. We're nothing. We're at the bottom of the heap. So why in the world would they care about that kind of God? So give me your name, Lord, and, and kind of uh, explain to me why you should be trusted and what your power is to accomplish something like this. So what is your name? Uh, and when you think about it, all the gods of Egypt had these great names. All these gods of Egypt had these great names like Ra, which means the swift one. And you had a river god and a moon god and a, you know, a god for just about everything. Fertility god. 
And they had specific powers to do specific things. And so Moses was saying, you know, what's your name? What, what do you do? What, what, what is your power? And, of course, there in verse, uh, the famous passage in verse 14, after Moses says, what, what, is, what am I going to say when they ask, what is his name? What's the name of this God? What shall I say to, to them then? In verse 14, God answers with his name. And then after this, God is going to say, okay, look, always, because people have uh, a built-in knowledge that there is a God, it's inherent. God created us with that knowledge, that there's something beyond us. And people make up all kinds of names for that, the, the Lord, uh, just the generic God, uh, the higher power, you know, all the different names you've ever heard. And God says, but there's just one name that I am giving to you. And that is there in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am that I am. Or possibly, I am who I am. Either way, it's the same thing. The idea is... God is telling Moses, I am self-existent, I am eternal, I am unique, and I am only one God, not a whole bunch of gods, like the river God, the sun God, and the moon God. So this is the beginning of monotheism right here. In Egypt, it had been, you know, polytheism, every God for everything, but now monotheism. There's only one God, and he's in control of everything, not just the river or the fertility of the crops or the weather or the insects. He's in charge of everything. There's just one God, the God of Israel, and he's all-powerful. So he says, uh, I am. You know, when you think about this idea of, of such a simple name, in the New Testament, amazingly enough, uh, Jesus kind of further explained that name by using it for himself. Over and over and over, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus answered people, and people say, who are you, and, and how did you do that, and where does your power come from? Jesus would answer with the name of God, I am that I am. The same name from Exodus 14. And whenever the, the religious leaders would hear this, they'd get upset because they weren't even allowed. They, were, they feared to use that name because they didn't want to ever use the name of the Lord in vain because of the Ten Commandments. So they would never utter that name. And they would just write that name with the consonants YHWH. YHWH. It's called the Tetragrammaton, which in Greek means four letters. And so they would write in uh, YHWH, and by just a quick bit of trivia, uh, the, the English, actually the southern uh, translation is Jehovah, which is actually not even a word, certainly not God's name. And where did they get that? When they did the King James Version of the Bible, the first really big English translation, and they looked in the Hebrew text and it said, YHWH, that people who had copied it before was trying to tell their audience, don't say YHWH 
or don't pronounce this name, use the name Adonai, which is, this means the Lord. And they put the vowels of Adonai underneath it. Well, when the translators, the English translators in 1611 did the King James, they saw those vowels and thought that they were telling them those are the vowels of YHWH. So they stuck those in there and made a new, up a new word, Jehovah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure what difference that makes, but I'll never say that word again. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, because of the verb, Jesus, uh, not Jesus, but also uh, um, God says in verse 14, when he repeats it, he just uses the verb form, I am. And because of that, they uh, are pretty certain, um, almost 100%, that what, what he was saying is, it comes from the verb to be. And he's saying, I am. And Literally, it says in, in Greek, eia asher eia, which means I am, and then the that, or who, I am. So he's self-existent and eternal and all-powerful. Jesus, again, fulfilled this completely. You know, just a few examples. When Jesus walked on the water and he got in the boat, they just were astonished and looked at him as if saying, how did you do that? And he, what, he said, I am that I am. Doesn't that blow your mind? Can you imagine what they thought when he said that? Uh, when the religious leaders asked how he could say Abraham saw Jesus and, and vice versa, they said, wait a minute. This is in John 8, 58 and 59. They said, before Abraham, that he was like, you know, 1,400 years ago. How can you say he saw you, you saw him? And so Jesus says there, before Abraham was, I am. And again, he used the name of God, meaning he pre-existed before Abraham. He pre-existed as God in eternity. So I am. Then he would say, you know, all through the Gospel of John, uh, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the great shepherd. I am the, re the resurrection. Who can say stuff like that? If you and I said that, the people would think we were nuts, and we would be nuts. Only, only God can say that, and that's what Jesus was saying, uh, I am. I am God, Jesus was saying. So real quick, the five questions and objections that Moses had to this call. God called him from the burning bush to go and represent him, to, have, to tell Israel first to follow me, and then to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So what, it, you know, Moses feeling inadequate. He's the reluctant prophet, as we said. He gives five questions and objections to this calling. And it's very much, I think we can relate to this. Because so many times people have said, would you like to do this? I'm too busy. Or would, would you do this? Get somebody else. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at that stuff. Get somebody else. So we're just like this. We're reluctant just like Moses. So let's look at him real quick. First he says in verse 13 through 15, he says, who am I? Which is a real good question. 
If God tells you to do some great thing, the amazing thing, you're going to say, who am I to do that? I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not, you know, whoever. And that's what Moses was saying. Uh, this is too difficult. I, I'm not qualified. And so God's answer is, it's not important who you are. It's important that I'm with you. And he says, I will be with you. The, the second question in the same verse is, okay, then who are you? <laughs> if success depends on God, then who, who are you? And so God answers, my name is I am that I am. I'm eternal. I'm self-existent. I'm transcendent. I'm all-powerful. I'm the guy that can get these things done. Uh, in verse 16 and 17, he then uh, gives Moses a message to Israel, saying, go to them and say, I promise to bring you out, and I'm going to do it. And not only that, I'm going to take you to the promised land. There in verse 16 and 17. Then verse 18 to 22, God gives Moses a message to deliver to Egypt. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let Israel go out to worship God for three days. question you should be asking is, well, if God intended them to go out permanently, why did he tell Moses to tell him for three days? Great question. <laughs> you know, I read about eight commentaries trying to figure that out myself. So here's basically what, what I came up with, why God told him to, to go just ask for three days. Number one, this was just the opening move in this huge chess game between Moses and Pharaoh. It was just the opening move. God will say in verse 19, look at verse 19, God says, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go. So God already knows he's not going to let him go. So what he's doing is he's, it's like an opening move. And then secondly, it's, I'll make a very reasonable request that he shouldn't turn down. So that's what he's going to do is prove that Pharaoh is unreasonable and he won't even let Israel do the, the barest worship of God. Just for a couple of days. He won't even go for that. So God is reasonable. Pharaoh is unreasonable. And then thirdly, more important than the length was its purpose. The purpose is to go out and worship their God. That's what this is really all about. To set them apart to worship their God. Uh, so he's also going to tell them there as I said in verse 19, that Pharaoh wouldn't let him. Now Moses, we're going to find out next week, Moses is not going to remember that. <laughs> you know, now that he thinks God's with him and he's got signs, you know, to show, miracles to do, he thinks he's got it made. Next week we'll see what happens. Uh, and don't forget to take your questions on the table because it's a great lesson. It's called disappointment with God. Uh, Moses is going to go and do what God told him to do and he'll be turned down. He'll go, what? And his people's workload will increase. So they're all going to be mad at him. So he's going to go back to God and say, what happened? I did just what you told me. But he forgot that God already said, he's not going to let you go. I'm, verse 20, I'm going to have to actually, as he says, stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with miracles. 
10 miracles, 10 mighty acts of God to make Pharaoh let them go. And here's another amazing prophecy or prediction that will come true. He says, I will grant these people that are in slavery now, I'm going to make you a favored people, blessed. So much so that the Egyptians who oppress you now, you know what they're going to do? They're going to say, you can have all our stuff if you'll just go. They're going to give you all their gold and silver and clothes and everything because they're going to realize when I get through with them after 10 plagues, they're going to realize who God is and who I am favoring. And they're going to be so ready for you to leave. They're going to be willing to give up all their stuff to get you out of here, to obey God. And so he says in verse 22, look at the last line. Thus you will plunder, and he says, the women will ask, and they'll give it to the women. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. I see the irony there, the divine justice, that uh, ordinarily a nation plunders another nation through warriors and great fighting men and all this. But in this case, it's the women that are just going to go in (laughs) and plunder them. And they're going to be willing to give them all their stuff. And then the irony, when you think about, wait a minute, golly, God's going to let them leave with all that gold and silver of Egypt? Is that fair? Is that right? Are they stealing? Well, just think how many years they'd work for them for free. It's time for payback. (laughs) You owe us, let me see, 400 years times minimum wage, $5 an hour, that comes to a quadrillion dollars. And so, no, uh, it's totally just that they walk out with that. And so uh, the third question Moses asks in in chapter 4, verse 1, after God lays this all out for him, Moses says, well, uh, here's the deal, though. What if they will not listen to me or believe me? You know, the greatest fear of all of us is rejection. We don't want to be rejected. One of the reasons people don't like evangelism, fear of rejection. God's answer says, okay, uh, you know, you, you're, you're unwilling to step out in faith. I'll give you, and this is, a, this is because of this special nature of this calling, three signs. So he gives him three miraculous signs to do, the staff that turns into a snake, uh, the hand that he puts in his coat, pulls it out, it's leprous, you know, bright white. He puts it back in, pulls it out, it's normal again. And then thirdly, you'll be able to turn water into blood. So after you do that, Israel will believe you. And they did, of course. Uh, and then the fourth question, which now becomes an objection in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 10. He says, what you're asking me to do, I'm not good at. I have never been eloquent. I've never been a good speaker. I'm slow of speech. Therefore, send somebody else. God's answer is, hey, who do you think made your mouth? I did. I'm the creator. Didn't you get that back there when I gave you my name? I created your mouth. I'll be with your mouth. I'll give you the words to say. Don't worry about it. Just show up. And, of course, that's our call to service as well. 
I'm not very good at that. I don't know if I can do that, you know, get somebody else. Well, God just wants us to show up ready for duty, faithfully. And then he'll use us to do something. It's just that simple, and that's what he's telling Moses. So is God going to be uh, insisting that Moses go? Yeah, already, you know, we've seen four times God command Moses to go. He's not going to take no for an answer. So Moses' fifth and final objection was, you know, finally, here's the real thing. Here's the real Moses. He's been coming up with this stuff, negotiating, trying to talk God out of it. But here's what it really comes down to. Moses says, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> Send somebody else. Get somebody else to do that. I, I, you know, I've got my life. I got a new home and family. Got this big herd here. I'm busy. Get somebody else. Uh, comes down to just a fundamental unwillingness and act of his will to disobey. That's what it comes down to in the end. And God's answer is, uh, no, you're going to go. I'll send Aaron with you, and he'll, he'll help you talk, but I will not take no for an answer. <laughs> How do you like them apples? You know? And, and as I said, I think the same thing applies to us. We're saying no, we're coming up with all kinds of questions and objections, but God is saying, I'm not taking no for an answer. You're going to serve me. It's just a matter of how long it takes me to convince you, to work on you, to move you. So in conclusion, uh, what can we learn from, you know, all these excuses of Moses and, and what can we learn from God's answers? God is not moved. He's not changed by our excuses, by Moses' excuses. God will not remove the call. God will not remove the accountability. It stays. Even if you say no, even if you say I can't, the call is still there and he's going to hold us accountable and responsible. So the greatest problem in our faithfully acting as servants is our reluctance. Our selfish resistance, you could say. And God is not going to force us. He's not going to take, you know, you by the neck and, you know, make you go. He's just going to keep calling until you go. And as, as I said earlier, uh, quoting Oz Guinness, when, when we say go or when God's calling or, or you are I to go, he's not saying that you have to go to India or China or anything like that. He's just saying where you are and who you are. Go, follow me, serve me, all right? So God will be persistent because answering his call is fulfilling that purpose in our lives that we need. Just like Osgina said, we all are born with the, a need to have a purpose, to answer a call, to have meaning in our life. And so God knows that. And so this is actually, he's doing this actually to do Moses good, actually to do us good. That's what the call's all about, to bless us. Think about it. What if God had said to Moses, okay, fine, you're right. Go back to your vocation. Go back to the sheep and the goats and your family there in the desert, and I'll get somebody else. Well, what if that had happened? 
Uh, <laughs> well, you know, uh, in Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 10, we're told Moses, the servant of God, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. And why? Because he showed up. And God used him. God worked through him. The same guy with all the excuses. God worked through him. God did great things through him. And so the same calls come into us and it's going to be, you're going to answer now or later. <laughs> right? So let me, uh, let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us so greatly by calling us to serve you. Calling us to believe in you and then calling us to serve you. How wonderful, what a blessing that is that you care so much about us, that you want to use us uh, to do such great things as you did Moses. Did great things through him. He was so reluctant to come. And I pray, Lord, that you would work the same uh, calling in our lives and and using us and working through us wherever we are and whoever we are. In Jesus' name, amen.